Let us pray together. Well, how can we read this section and not ask you, our Father, to give us ears to hear, particularly with the spectacle of an entire nation who collectively has turned a deaf ear on you? Well, I mean Israel, but I could have been speaking of America just as well, couldn't I? Your words are powerful, your words are living. Help us today to feel their power and be moved by their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our section is Matthew 13, 9 through 18, and the title is Beware the Two Saddest Words. Now, uh, in giving it as 9 through 18, I take the last verse of the preceding section and the first of the next, because they really frame this section. I want to talk about the structure of this. Now, this is going to, I'm afraid this is going to seem a little imposing, but stay with me. Let me walk you through this because it really helps us understand it, to see how Jesus lays this out. So there is a frame, and I've got a little diagram of that off to the right. Um, And you see it's called an alternating parallel. A, B, C, B stroke, C stroke, C double stroke, B double stroke, A stroke. Yeah, that's perfectly clear. We'll just stay with me. We'll, we'll get it, I promise, if you stay with me. So the frame you see is in verses 9 and 18. He's just given the parable of the sowers, uh, the soils, and he closes that by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples ask him why he's preaching in parables, and he explains that to them, and then closes and pivots to the explanation in verse 18 by saying, you therefore must hear the parable of the sower. So to the mixed crowd, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Then he explains to them that they alone have been given ears to hear, and he says in the last verse, you therefore must hear the parable of the sower, and then he explains it. And then in verses uh, 11 and 12, you see he alternates. First, he says, because to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. I call that B. But to those ones, it has not been given. I call that C. Then he reverts to those outside again at the start of verse 12. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will be caused to abound. And then back to those outside, which I call C uh, stroke. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So you see, he speaks first of the disciples, then of those outside, again of the disciples, and then of those outside, and then does that same thing in the remainder of this. First explaining those outside, which I call C stroke stroke, and then speaking again to those inside, which I call B stroke stroke. So at the beginning of verses 11 and 12, he spoke to the disciples. Here's why I speak to you. You've been given the ability to hear and understand. And then he explains that in verse, verses uh, 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For amen, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to perceive what things you were saying and yet did not perceive and to hear what things you were hearing and yet did not hear. And before that, he spoke and explained about those outside and why he's no longer speaking in plain, simple terms, but he's speaking to them in parables. He says in verse 13, on account of this, I'm speaking to them in parables because though seeing they do not see and though hearing they do not hear nor comprehend and in them is being filled up the prophecy of Isaiah, which says you will surely hear, yet you absolutely will not comprehend and you will surely see, yet you absolutely will not perceive. For the heart of this people was made thick, and with their ears they hear with difficulty, heard with difficulty, and their eyes they shut, lest they perceive with their eyes and with their ears hear, and with their heart comprehend and return, and I would cure them. So, this is what he's doing. He's explaining. Remember, the point of this chapter is to show the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, because Israel in its leaders has committed the unpardonable sin. It has rejected Christ. It hasn't repented of his preaching. And the leaders have said, in fact, he does his miracles by the power of Satan. And says, it's, Jesus says, there is no forgiveness for that sin, for coming to the conclusion that what I do by the Holy Spirit, I actually do by Satan. There's no going back from that. They want to pretend there is. They, they next say, well, give us a sign from heaven. And he says, no. The only sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah when I die and I'm raised from the grave. So 
he shoots off at the start of verse, uh, chapter 13, just telling parables. He's never done that. And he just shoots off for this parable of the soils. No explanation at all. And then Matthew brings up something that happens later. This section we're studying today. It's actually after he's given parables to those by the seashore, privately the disciples come up and they ask this question. They ask, for what reason are you speaking to them in parables? And Jesus explains why he's teaching in parables. And what's this all about? You can tell by the words that are repeated. In the frame, what word is repeated? There's a verb repeated in the frame. He who has ears, let him hear. You therefore must hear the parable of the sower. What, what verb do you hear two times there? No pun intended. You hear here. <laughs> and guess what? The verb here occurs nine times in this section between those two frames. And words that have to do with hearing and understanding. Um, the verb for see is six times. Uh, the verb for comprehend is three times. The noun's ear, four times. Eye, three times. Heart, two times. So it's all about their refusal to hear and see and the judgment of their inability to hear and see what Jesus has been saying. So this section explains the shift in Jesus' teaching. Now let's go through it more slowly and you'll see how it, how it breaks down. Roman numeral one then, those first two verses, well, the first part of this section... Roman numeral one, we see God's hand of division, verses nine through 12. God's hand of division. Jesus is pointing us here, not for the first time. Uh, We see the discourse frame open in verses nine and 10, where he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples come up and say to him, for what reason are you speaking to them in parables? And then this is closed in verse 18 where he says, you must hear the parable of the sowers. Well, they're, they're, they're puzzled because Jesus has just told these parables and given no explanation. He's just told these figures of speech and the crowds are left just, what was that? What just happened? This is not like, you know, love your neighbor and the things that he said before. This is, I don't even know what his point is. And so the disciples come up to him privately and they say, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking to them in parables? And so that opens this, this discourse. And we see Jesus noting the distinction in verses 11a and 12a. The distinction of the disciples who are seen in, by two marks. Those disciples, those, those to whom he's speaking, those on the inside, are marked, first of all, by gift. Letter A, they're marked by a gift. Jesus says, and he in answer said, because to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. Has been given by who? By yourself? By your common sense? By your free will? Hating God and being dead and suddenly somehow by an independent power deciding to change your own nature? By a power outside your nature? Is, is that what Jesus means when he says to you it's been given? Who gave this to them? God gave this to them. Been given by God. And this is something he said again and again. And the prophets and the apostles will say again and again. It's given by God. It's not given by themselves. He is not commending them on their good sense. Or their innocence. Or their honesty. Or their exercise of their independent of God free will. This is not what Jesus is saying. The reason why they can understand these things is simply a gift. It was given to them. As he will later say to Peter when he confesses his, his uh, divine messiahship, he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my Father who's in heaven revealed this to you. And so he says to them now, it's been given to you. Uh, this is the same thing he said back in chapter 11. You could turn there if you like. Chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, when confronted with the the reality of all these cities to whom his men and he himself have preached, not not repenting, what does he say? What is his response to this? Does he feel like he's failed, like they've failed? No, he actually praises God. He sees the sovereign hand of God equally in the rebellion of the unbelievers and in the conversion of of believers. Verse 27, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Why don't they see it? Because God hid it from them. Why do they see it? Because God revealed it to them. That's God's hand, according to Jesus. Why? 
Because they, well, Jesus, yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. He traces it to the will of God. Now, if you weren't here when we studied this, we looked at this very closely, and it's all online. So I'd encourage you to take a look if this is puzzling to you. Uh, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So he puts it all on the sovereign will of God. And this is, this is the one voice of Scripture. Scripture makes God God. Scripture makes God ultimate. Our fallen nature rebels against that. That's supposed to be resolved when we convert, when we deny ourselves, and when we pick up our cross. We're supposed to have bowed before God's Godhood, but a lot of Christians have a rough time with this. But that is what the Bible teaches. You can see it in Paul. If you turn to Romans chapter 9, do. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 20. We won't look at absolutely every word, but he's talking about the same thing Jesus is. In fact, the exact same thing, because Paul is here talking about why have so many in Israel not believed? And he goes to the sovereign will of God for his answer. Now, Romans nine fourteen, he says, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then Paul says, it does not depend on the one who wills or on the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. Then he quotes God's word to Pharaoh, that he raised him up to glorify his name. And he concludes in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, he knows exactly what some people will be thinking, and he revoices the question. In verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And this would be the perfect time for him to say, oh, well, we, we, do, we resist his will. God, is, God has to respond to our decisions. We really make the decision, and he waits to see what we will do, and then he responds. And if we believe, well, then he elects us. And if we don't, well, then he, he has no choice but to damn us. But that's not Paul's answer. What does Paul say? He says the same thing that we can read in Job and in so many other places. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? You see, you, you voice that question. You say, oh, it's, I don't see how God can do this. It's not fair. Uh, who, who, how can he blame us for doing it when his will is absolute? And you should hear off to the left of you Job saying, Job saying, dude, no, don't go there. <laughs> Trust me on this, don't go there. You don't have the resume, you don't have the credentials, you cannot argue with God as if he was your peer. And you have Paul off to the right saying, oh man, who are you to answer against God? We don't like it, perhaps, but this is the answer of Scripture. We don't like it simply because we're rebels at heart. But Scripture, the Son of God, the prophets of God, the apostles of Christ, all say with one voice that ultimately God is God. And so we have no one to thank for our salvation but God, which you will recognize you read in Scripture over and over. Let him who glories glory in the Lord and in the Lord alone. So the giving is a giving by God, a sovereign gift of grace to these otherwise granite-headed, simple, stubborn, slow gentlemen. God gives them to know these mysteries. And the mysteries, let's talk about that for a minute. What are these mysteries? I think I can show you fairly simply. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. I'll just remind you. All right. A bit after the Psalms, you've got Isaiah chapter 11. The ladies have started studying that on Fridays. If you can go to that study, you should go to that study, ladies. So in Isaiah 11, the prophet says, So a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's the Messiah. Grows up from Jesse, David's father. He comes from that line. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, he says in verse 2, and then details who that spirit is. 
And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. He'll bring justice to the poor. Now, this is not just talking about preaching. This is talking about legislation. This is talking about affecting society, changing society. And he goes on to say, and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will put the wicked to death. Again, that's not just symbolism. That is an actual change. That's a revolution. That's the coming in of a new kingdom. And righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Exactly the same thing that's true of no politician today. (laughs) And then it goes even further. Verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. Calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a young boy will lead them. Cow and bear will graze the young will lie down together. They're young. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing baby will play by the hole of the cobra. Verse 9, they will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Now that, that is not a, a spiritual picture of what's spiritually true now because of the preaching of the gospel. That is a literal picture of the transformation of society and of this planet when Messiah comes. But see, he comes from David's line, verse 1, and then the kingdom comes. So if you read that and that's all that you read, you would assume, wouldn't you, naturally, that the Messiah comes and with him comes the kingdom of God. Well, the Messiah has come. The first verse of Matthew's gospel tells that. And the chapters that follow show that. Jesus is the Messiah. He's qualified in every way. But did the kingdom come? See, now there we just have to remind ourselves of Matthew chapter 10, where he tells his apostles what they're to preach. They're to go out to Israel and preach. Repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And then we have to remember chapter 11. And what's that? It's the report that these cities did not repent. And even John the Baptist has questions. And we see that Jesus is not being welcomed. And then comes Matthew chapter 12. And what do you have there? You have clash after clash with the religious leaders of the day. Climaxing in what? The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Attributing the works of Jesus to Satan. Well, so this is what actually happened when Messiah came. So what is the plan for the kingdom of God now? Is it just going to come anyway? That's what chapter 13 explains. A judgment falls on the nation, and as I told you, never again do we see in Matthew Jesus preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Never again. They are not being offered the kingdom any longer. And he's preparing his disciples for what's to come. And that's what Matthew chapter 13 is about. It's about the mysteries of the kingdom. What will the kingdom program be now? We, we, we would have thought from the Old Testament the Messiah would come and then, bam, the kingdom would come. However, Messiah comes and is rejected by his own people. And now chapter 13 tells us what happens. And, and what is it that happens? Think of the parables. What do they tell you? The word goes out. But most soils don't receive the word. Only some do. Satan plants his people along with the people of God. And they grow up together through this age. And judgment comes at the end of the age. And meanwhile, the kingdom is is a, a precious thing that individuals find and sell everything for. Not the nation of Israel. But individuals find it. And during this time, the kingdom spreads. It starts out very tiny like a mustard seed but grows into a massive plant as the, as the gospel spreads. Or put another way, it's like a bit of leaven put into a lump of dough and it permeates slowly to where it's everywhere in the dough. So the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom will spread during this period. And at the end of it will be a judgment and the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous and the unrighteous will go to eternal punishment. So you see what did I just do? I just summarized all the parables in this chapter. And that's what this chapter does. It describes this age that you and I are living in. The age between the first coming of Messiah and the second coming of Messiah. We're in that period between the two comings. And the parables both explain and they 
uh, uh, prepare us for that. And you don't find that in the Old Testament expressly. You don't find that expressly. You, you find pieces that, that now in retrospect you see point in that direction, but it takes Jesus to reveal it. That's why it's called a mystery, not something that takes a, a, a Miss Marple or a Hercule Poirot to figure out or Sherlock Holmes, but something that is only known when God reveals it, as he does through Jesus here. That's what the parables do. So they are marked by a gift, the gift to know these mysteries, which those outside do not. Secondly, Jesus' disciples are marked by abundance. Verse 12a says that. He says, For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will be caused to abound. Well, what does that make you think of? that he just talked about should make you think about the fourth soil. The fourth soil, the seed is sown, and it bears a bumper crop, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And it keeps giving fruit, Jesus says. It keeps giving fruit. Well, that's what is true of those of God's elect, God's people, those to whom he gives this knowledge. They have what God gives them, and they abound God's gift of hearing, his gift of understanding, his gift of seeing lead to more and more knowledge and more and more understanding. That's the way it is in a born-again person. Christians grow. They don't stagnate. And if you say, oh, I think, you know, Christians do stagnate a lot of them. I don't think it's a big deal. Well, if you think it's not a big deal, you don't see things the way the writer to the Hebrews sees them. Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 5? I would like to think you did because I keep bringing it up in the last 10 years. Hebrews chapter 5 where he says, you know, I'd like to talk more about Melchizedek, but I know I'm going to lose you because you've turned into such lazy listeners. You ought to be teaching people now and I need to teach you the ABCs. The fact that they didn't grow made him fear that they weren't alive at all, that they weren't saved at all. Stagnation was not an okay thing, and it shouldn't be to us. The normal, healthy Christian life is a life of growth and fruitfulness. I'll just read you, uh, but you note down Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Paul uses very similar language uh, to Jesus' parable of the soils to describe a Christian church. Colossians 1, 9, For this reason also since the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. Now that word multiplying could also be translated growing. In fact, I would translate it growing. In every good work, bearing fruit and growing, just like the fourth soil. This is what Christians do. We grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom and fruit bearing. He to whom it is given has and more will be given. He will be caused to abound, Jesus says. So these are the marks of Jesus' disciples. They are marked by God's gift and they are marked by abundance. And thus they are divided by God's hand from the rest. Letter B, they are divided from those outside. Jesus' disciples are divided by God's hand from those outside. Now I call them that by borrowing it from Mark 4.11, which is Mark's telling of this, of this same incident. And he quotes Jesus as saying, but to those who are outside, all things happen in parables. So Jesus calls the uh, reprobate, the, the, un, the non-saved, he calls them those outside. So they too are marked. Just as disciples are marked, they are marked. First of all, they are marked by withholding. Verse 11b, but to those ones it has not been given. So again, there is no honest way around this. He simply points it back to the sovereign hand of God to the sovereign hand of God. They had, now, they had been given a lot. They had heard. They'd been given God's word and that it had been said to them. It had been told to them. It had been spoken to them. And they'd been given opportunity to hear and believe. But what they weren't given was ears and eyes. That sovereign gift that marked the disciples apart from them. They weren't given that. Now, a non-Christian would say, well, that's, that's not fair. A Christian would, pry, would reply, it is just. In fact, it's generous. 
Somebody might, uh, again, I would just point you to Romans 9, which we just read, which says perfectly clearly exactly what we're saying here. But if somebody were to say, well, I, I don't see, did they have a chance? Did, Paul talks about Pharaoh. Did, did they have a chance? I don't think it was fair. They weren't given a chance. And the biblical answer would be, oh, yes, they, they were absolutely given a chance. They're given an absolutely, in fact, they were given a chance that is uh, perfect in every way. When? Read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, literal paradise is created. And our first head, Adam, was created. And he was created in original righteousness and holiness. He was created in the image of God. He was given absolutely every advantage. He was given the perfect word of God without the slightest bit of distortion. He had a perfect environment. He had a perfect upbringing. He had a perfect parent. Unlike any one of us, Adam had these advantages. And what did he do? What he did, he did not do privately. I remind you, he did this as our representative. Hello, his name is Adam, which means man. It means mankind. He was us. He was our representative. He was our head. And with perfect circumstances and perfect makeup, such as none of us has, he chose to sin. That was our chance. And when he sinned, we were plunged into guilt and corruption with him. Read about that in uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, where Paul says, just as surely as Jesus later represented his people, Adam represented all who were in him. So they are marked by a withholding. And secondly, they are marked by diminishing. The disciples are marked by a gift. Those outside are marked by withholding. The disciples are marked by abundance. Those outside are marked by diminishing. Number two, by diminishing. Verse 12b, whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. The one who does have, Jesus says, he'll be made to abound, but the one who does not have what he has will be taken away from him. See, in the Bible, sin is punished by sin. The greater punishment of sin is sin, and finally the wrath of God. Willful ignorance is punished by deepening folly. As Jeremiah 8 says, they've turned away from the word of the Lord, and what wisdom do they have? The further they go, the further they go into folly and madness. We see this in our society, but you see it in human history nonetheless. Uh, unrepentant man declines. He doesn't evolve. He declines as God gives him over to sin. Turn to Romans with me and let me remind you of how this works. And we'll start with verse 18, as many of you would expect me to. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So they've got possession of it, but they suppress what they possess. They don't embrace it. They don't repent. They don't humble themselves. They repress it. They suppress it. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. All around them and outside of them, and even in their own makeup, is a witness to God. Wherever they live, God is glorified in his creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse, because they see it, but they rebel against it. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged God's glory for created things. And here we go in verse 24, the first time, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored, so they worship the creature rather than the creator. And a second time, verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions. And there's the uh, origin of homosexuality in, our, in all, all manner of sexual perversion in our species. God gives them over. And verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. So even what he has by natural revelation is taken away from him as he plunges deeper and deeper into sin and folly. Those are the only choices. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and everything else is the beginning of everything else. <laughs> that's not exactly what Proverbs says, but that's an application of it. So, marked by diminishing. So, as I said then, Jesus expands on those outside. In verses 13 through 15, he focuses on God's hand of judgment to these to whom he's now speaking in parables. God's hand of judgment. And he begins with the penalty in verse 13. The penalty. On account of this, I am speaking to them in parables because though seeing, they do not see, and though hearing, they do not hear nor comprehend. See, there is a great provocation in their response to the Son of God. They've heard him speak plainly and pointedly over and over. How many times have we seen him say to the Pharisees, what, what's the question he asked them over and over? Have you not read? And he gives them assignments. Go read this verse. Try to understand it. Get back to me. They never do. And he speaks to the people just as plainly and just as clearly over and over. They've heard and heard and heard, but they didn't listen. And they've seen him do remarkable signs and wonders and miracles in, in every realm, realm of nature, the realm of the spiritual, the realm of the physical. They've seen this and see this, but they haven't perceived. They haven't comprehended. In the proud stubbornness of unbelief, they don't take the lesson. There's great provocation behind this penalty, and it brings a great penalty. And the penalty is, time's up. Basically, that's it. Time's up. You have had opportunity year after year as the Messiah has gone around about, among you and you have not repented and you've not responded and you've hardened and hardened and hardened your heart. So now he says, time's up. And they do one more sin in chapter 12 and they commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Then they just go back to normal thing of saying, okay, show us a miracle. And Jesus says, nope, sorry, the miracle store is closed. You'll see one more sign. And that's when the Son of Man rises from the dead like Jonah rose from the, the belly of the great fish. So, time's up. See, God is long-suffering. Yes, He is. And He's slow to anger. Yes, He is. But He will become angry. And His wrath will fall. And there is a limit to the time He gives and the space He gives for people to repent. And they are passing that time. And that's why he speaks to them in parables. That's the penalty. Letter B, the prophecy. He goes back to Isaiah, and he says, in them is being filled up. That's kind of striking. In other words, it was fulfilled in the people of Isaiah's day, but these people really fill up the prophecy of Isaiah, which is, he quotes from Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10, which says, you will surely hear, yet you absolutely will not comprehend. You will surely see, yet you will absolutely will not perceive. For the heart of this people was made thick, and with their ears they heard with difficulty, and their eyes they shut, lest they perceive with their eyes, and with their hearts hear, and with their heart comprehend. I'm sorry, ears hear, and with their heart comprehend and return, and I would cure them. Well, in understanding this prophecy, I'd like to look at the background in Daniel chapter 9. Turn there. Now, you sharp cookies, you're probably thinking, background in chapter 9 of Daniel, Daniel lived after Isaiah. Okay, I didn't forget that. It's okay. I'm okay so far. But in his prayer in chapter 9, Daniel reviews the history of Israel. And that's why I'm calling this background. He's read the prophecy of Jeremiah in his 70 years, and he's praying and confessing and asking God's grace. And in beginning, he begins with confession. <clears throat> and in his confession, he says here, look at verse 6, and, and notice what this tells us. And he's talking about his nation's history. Not just the last few years, but the history of his nation. Moreover, we have not listened to your slaves, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us open shame. Now, all of us, he says. Verse 8, O Yahweh, to us belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. 
nor have we listened to the voice of Yahweh our God to walk in his laws which he put before us through his slaves, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has trespassed against your law, even turning aside, not listening to your voice. The curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we've sinned against him. So you see, he confesses they heard, but they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't believe. They didn't obey. They didn't walk. And he's talking about their history. And you can read this phrase a number of times that God sent his slaves, the prophets, again and again. The Hebrew literally says, rising up and sending. Like early every morning, God says, okay, go again, preach again. And they heard the word of God over and over, but they did not listen. That's the background in, of Isaiah 6. So now let's look at the content of Isaiah 6. Turn there with me, if you would, please. Isaiah 6. And what is, the, what is the setting of this chapter? It's the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, Uzziah was a basically godly king. Uzziah then had a, a son, Jotham, who was an okay king, but he was somewhat compromised. And Jotham had a son named Ahaz. Ahaz was A, a really good king, or B, a really, really bad king. What do you pick? It would be B. <laughs> He was a really, really wicked king. And of course, God knows where this is going. And Isaiah sees this commissioning vision of Yahweh, and he's overwhelmed with Yahweh's holiness, as the seraphim are overwhelmed with his holiness, living in a people who are uh, 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 immersed in sin and rebellion. He sees this holy God, and he's undone. Verse 5, I am ruined, he says. But God takes a coal from the altar where blood sacrifice is made, and touches it to his lips, and he's forgiven. And then he hears God saying, Whom shall I send? Verse 8, Who will go for me, go for us? And he says, Here I am, send me. And his lip has been, lips have been purified, and now he wants to use them in service of God. And what is he told? Verse 9, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on saying, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim lest they see, hear, understand, return, and be healed. Now that part you see is quoted in Matthew 13, but let's read a little bit more. Isaiah says, how long? And he says, until cities are devastated without inhabitant, houses without people, the land is devastated to desolation, and Yahweh has removed men far away, and their forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Well, it's not exactly a, you know, your best life right now sort of message, is it? It's kind of a downer. Uh, how long is this going to go on? Go, it's going to go on until they are judged right out of the land, until the land is a smoking crater, basically, God says. Yikes. But is that the end? There's one more verse. I wonder if that verse is worth reading. Let's see. Verse 13, yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be again subject to burning like a terebinth or like an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. What is that? That's the doctrine of the remnant, that God always has an elect remnant, a remnant, Paul says, by the election of grace. And this is exactly what Paul's going to talk about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that yes, the nation is turned in unbelief, but there is an elect remnant, and one day God will convert the nation. But there is a remnant, a holy seed that survives, if you will. And that holy seed is what we're going to read about uh, in this section. It is God's people. We'll talk about that in just a second. But notice that it ends with this holy seed, which will survive God's judgment on the nation. And so now let's talk the application in Matthew 13, number 3. One of the big themes of the Bible, if I were to write a book about what the big story of the Bible is, one of the things I'd say, and, and the reason for all the dispensations, is to prove that there's no negotiating with sin. That, that sin is like cancer. You don't want to leave one cell of it, because if you leave one cell, what's that cell going to do? It's going to multiply and it's going to ruin everything. And so with sin, 
So there's no negotiating with sin. Despite every outward advantage and opportunity, the nation of Israel has not repented. They've not humbled themselves. They've not consistently walked with God. And so in Jesus' day, the Son of God has come. He's spoken full of grace and truth. He's shown the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And they still close their eyes and stop up their ears. And they don't want to hear and they don't want to listen. And so, judgment falls. Judgment falls. God is indeed incredibly long-suffering. But there is a deadline. And the one thing I can tell you about it for absolute certainty is it's coming a lot faster than you or I think. It's coming a lot faster than any individual thinks. There is a deadline. And they've passed one deadline. They've passed one deadline. Romans 2, 4, and 5, Paul makes the same application to people reading the letter to us. He says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Yes, indeed. They were approaching their date with God. They'd already had judgment begin to fall. And that nation would once again be ruined and they once again would be expelled from their land because of their rejection of Messiah. Yet there is the the holy seed. So let's look at Roman numeral 3, God's hand of blessing, verses 16 through 18. And here we see that holy seed, the remnant according to the election of grace that Paul talks about. And what is the mark of this holy seed? Verse 16, what is the mark of this holy seed in God, under God's hand of blessing? He says in verse 16, But blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. All the people don't hear, they don't see, but they do. The disciples do, and they do hear. Now, I want to make sure we understand very well what Jesus is saying. And first, let's look then at, at what he's not saying. When he says, blessed are your eyes, he's not saying to them, congratulations, you have earned a blessing by your brilliant decision to see and to hear, that you worked up out of your own fallen, God-hating, dead will, and your own dead, God-hating, rebellious, distant heart. You somehow brought up from within yourself the good sense to believe and listen. So here's a blessing. You, you put that quarter of good will and, and good nature in the gumball machine of heaven, turn the knob and out comes a blessing. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying anything like that. What he's saying is you're blessed and the mark of your blessing is that you see and you hear. How do I know you're blessed? I know you're blessed because you do see and you do hear the word of God. We don't have blind, deaf people healing themselves. This healing is a gift of God, as Jesus has said to you. It's been given to know. And he says, blessed are your eyes. His eyes, their eyes are blessed, and he know that because they see. And, and so it is today. It's no, it's no different today. It's no different among us. 1 John 5, 1 and 2. Let me read that to you. 1 John 5, 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ... I'm sorry... Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It doesn't say everyone who believes will be born or is born. He's not saying what gets you born again, what's believing in Jesus. He's saying the opposite. I know that you've been born again. Why do I know you've been born again? Because you believe. Saving faith is the result of being born again. It's not the cause of being born again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who's been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do his commandments. There's the mark of God's regenerating work in us. So there's the mark, letter B. It's marvels in verse 17. It's marvels. For amen, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to perceive what things you were seeing and yet did not perceive... And to hear what things you were hearing and yet did not hear. You were living in the days of the fulfillment of prophecy. You were living in the days, he tells them, when the the crux of God's plan is happening. 
Oh, Isaiah would have loved to have seen this with his own eyes. Oh, Elijah and Elisha and Moses would have loved to see this with their own eyes. And Nahum and Habakkuk, Ezekiel, all the prophets of God, all the wise men, Solomon would have loved to see this. David would have loved to see this. And in the plan of God, they all lived. They died by faith and hope. And these things were not fulfilled. Oh, but you, you live in the days of fulfillment. You are seeing and hearing things they could only see in vision and hear from my lips. But you see them with your own eyes and you hear them with your own ears. And so this is a wonderful marvel that has been given to them by the grace of God. And then finally, letter C, it's must. And that brings us to the closing of the frame, which pivots us to the next section. It's must, letter C, it's must. You, therefore, must hear the parable of the sower. So let me remind you of the frame. In verse 9, he's just told the parable of the sower to this mixed multitude of the people on the shore and his believing disciples in the boat. And at the end of that, he says, whoever has ears to hear, to hear let him hear. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And they say, why, later, why do you talk in parables? And he says, because to you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. And then he says to them, you therefore must hear. God has given you this ability. God's given you this amazing privilege to live in the day of the fulfillment, all these things. So you must hear the parable of the sower. You see, God has opened their ears. Now they must use those ears. It's not magic. They're not robots. They're given this new ability. Now they've got to exercise this ability. And, and you see, new birth and spiritual sight and hearing, they're sovereign gifts of God's grace, and God calls, them, calls us to exercise them. He calls us to exercise them. Jesus says this is a gift. So what does that mean? Oh, it's a gift, so I guess what that means, I just, just lay back and just wait for all this spiritual knowledge to wash over me like the tide coming in, right? That's just, just it flows in me as I open up and use the force, you know, or whatever. That's just the way it goes. No, but Jesus says, no, you've got to hear. You've got to listen. You've got to use your ears. It's not magic. Uh, think of Lazarus in the grave and suppose Jesus calls, Lazarus, come forth. Well, that's kind of a stupid thing to say to a corpse, isn't it? Well, it'd be ridiculous. It'd be an offensive. It'd be a horribly out of place thing to say to a corpse. Except Jesus makes that corpse come to life when he says it. But now picture Lazarus hearing this, and he knows that he's been given life. He didn't choose life. He didn't lie there as a corpse and say, you know, I'd really rather be alive. I'll exercise my full will and become alive. That's not how that worked. So he knows this is a... And he hears Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. Suppose he thought... Well, you know what? God's sovereign grace has made me alive. I'll just trust God's sovereign grace to float me out of this tomb right out in front of everybody. Right? Would that, would that have been a godly thing for him to do, honoring the God's sovereign? Not at all, because he had a command. The person who made him alive said, come outside. The person who's made us alive says, listen. He says, learn. He says, continue in my word. He says, grow. He says, bear fruit. Is it honoring to him to say, well, no, I don't want to try to be a Christian. I just want to relax. I want to let go and I want to let God. No, that's not honoring to God. When we have a command to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, to long for the spiritual milk of the word, to continue in his word, to keep his commands, and on and on and on. And so he says to them, you've got to listen to the parable of the sower, and then he explains it to them. Well then, I said at the outset, I made the title of the sermon, Beware the Two Saddest Words. If you noticed, I haven't said what those sad words are. What are the two saddest words? Here they are. The two saddest words are too late. Those are the two saddest words. Too late. And we're looking at a generation here for whom... It was too late. Not one person there could have said, well, gee, I never heard. I never had an opportunity. I, I never was given a, uh, the, uh, the situation of hearing God's words. Not a one of them could say that. Well, just like right here, right? There's not a person in this room or in the reach of this internet 
uh, uh, outreach who can say, well, I just never heard. I just never heard the word of God explained or preached or taught to me. I never heard. Nobody can say that. No. God is good. God is long-suffering. God is slow to anger. But there is an expiration date to his long-suffering. And there is a date on which his anger will fall. Now, faced with this, we can make one of at least two very grave mistakes. We can simply decide, well, it's too late for us. I, I guess I've had my chance, and so I don't repent. You know what? While you're still breathing, you don't have the right to decide it's too late for you. You don't have that right. As long as you are alive, God's long-suffering is exercised towards you. Every day you open your eyes, take a breath. Every breath you draw is God's long-suffering and His slowness to anger. None of us can say, none of us can decide, well, it's too late for me. There's no point in repenting. Oh, no. If you hear my voice and you haven't repented, repent. God's kindness, He's given you yet another opportunity to hear the gospel. Nothing but mercy there. Nothing but long-suffering there. So take it. Believe. Repent. That would be one great mistake. But another terrible mistake would be to say, I've got all the time in the world. I'm young. I'm healthy. I can just repent at my own convenience. We have no idea. The one thing I can absolutely tell every young person about his his lifespan, it's going to be shorter than he thinks. Isn't that pretty much of a guarantee? Well, I can tell you story after story of people who obviously, though they died in their 70s and 80s, were clearly unprepared and and surprised to find that they died. And yet the death rate stands at 100%. The the time is approaching, and it's approaching faster. It would be great folly to say, you know, I've got, I can repent at my leisure, at my convenience. Friend, dear friend, you don't know what your leisure is. None of us does. None of us does. But we know We're here now hearing the word of God. We know we are once again being called to repent and believe. Repent. Believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of the Lord Jesus and how powerful they are, how razor sharp they are, how they cut through our human pride and our human pretense and our presumption before you. How Jesus speaks of your sovereignty and, and your great grace. And every one of us who knows you is just bound to confess to you that it is all of you, that you are a great Savior and we are debtor to mercy and to mercy alone, and that we boast in Jesus Christ alone and put no confidence in the flesh. We thank you for that great salvation. I just would earnestly pray for the lost who've come in today lost children of believing parents, lost spouses of believing men and women, lost friends, lost individuals, that the Spirit of God will apply this word and lead them to see their deep need of Christ and his great willingness to save and that they will come running to him for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.